what is a warning there for? Have you ever read a warning label? Has anybody ever given you a warning or a citation? Warnings. I had a friend just this week. Well, it actually happened maybe two weeks ago, but I heard the rest of the story this week. He was driving with his little pop-up camper, and as they were traveling through the mountains, the transmission started not working to not work properly. There was some grinding, there was all kinds of noise, and then it got stuck in various gears, and so really, I was thinking probably the thing to do in that situation would be to do what? Stop. Pull over. That's right. That would have made sense. And so in lieu of that sense, this individual continued to keep driving. And they kept that engine whining and making noise, and they were redlining the engine. What's that red there for? Does anybody know? I don't know a lot about cars. I can do a few simple, basic things, but I know the RPM gauge, and I know the color red. Red means stop. So anyway, over the course of everything, he finally took it into the shop. Sure enough, this 2009 vehicle needed a new transmission. Oh boy, what's that going to run? Well, 3800 bucks. Okay, when can you start? You, you know the routine. Went through all of that. Got the phone call. We finished the transmission. The transmission is working beautifully. And the cost was about what we told you. If you can come in and make that payment. And then we'll talk to you about the other issues with your car. Well, what else is wrong with my car? Well, in taking out for the test drive, we discovered that basically your entire engine is shot. And you're going to need a new engine. Now, I'm not here to debate with you whether that's ethical for this guy to charge them for that without knowing that the engine was bad. Maybe he didn't know. I don't know. The whole thing has kind of turned into a little bit of a mess. But I use that this morning to illustrate this idea of warnings. They're there for a purpose, aren't they? To help us to be aware of what's happening. Oh, maybe that is the first slide. Okay. Well, just ignore it for right now. First Chronicles 12:32 says, "And of the sons of Issachar, he who understands has an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do." We live in unusual times, don't we? Uncertain times. When good is called evil and evil is called good. We live in times of war and rebellion and uprising. We live in times of strange weather and calamity. We live in times of biblical ignorance and unprecedented selfishness and self-centeredness. If ever we needed the Issachar factor to have an understanding of the times and know what to do, I would think it would be today. To know what God's people ought to do. Now we're going to have to go through a quick review. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 13. You'll have to bear with me. I'm not a fan of PowerPoint. I'll just say it. Sorry, Valen. I love you. But as I was looking at this message this week, I said, man, I'm really going to need it. And so, yes, I, I needed a title screen or something else. You, you understand and I spent probably an hour and a half this morning going over Revelation 13 with slides and to try and show you how the first part, the beast from the sea, who that represents, and the beast from the earth, and who that represents. But I have so much on the other end of that to present, I thought, they don't want to be here till 4.30. So I cut that out. But I need you to understand that I realize there's a lot of Bible study that goes into the first several verses of chapter 13 and the remainder, but we're going to do a quick review. But if you don't understand, that's fine. If you haven't heard this before, that's fine. Talk to me, talk to somebody else. Let's have a Bible study this week so you can have that full understanding. But the beast from the sea has these six characteristics. It really has more than that if we start delving into Daniel and start putting the two together. But the beast from the sea in Revelation 13 has these characteristics. Authority from pagan Rome. It's a worldwide religious 
power. It claims equality with God, and it persecutes. It's a persecuting power. It reigns for 1,260 years, and that's this little thing that you already saw from 538, and we can pinpoint that time. We can pinpoint 1798, and that all comes together very nicely. And then lastly, the number of his name is 666. Who do we as a church, and a fair bit of Protestants out there, who do we understand this sea beast to be? Papal Rome. That's right. None other. But then, as we continue on in our review, we get to this beast from the earth, and we'll review very quickly. This beast rises after that date of 1798. It's a lamb-like beast. Arises in a relatively unpopulated area, the earth, not the sea. Thirdly, there's no crowns on its horns, and that is also significant. It would be a young nation. It would rise to a position of worldwide power and influence. And so I ask you, what's the only nation that fits this description? We just cut 30 minutes out of my sermon. Aren't you happy? (laughs) The United States of America. But now I want to unpack a little bit more this beast from the earth. So if you have your Bibles, I want to read it from the text, if we can. Revelation chapter 13, beginning verse 11. And it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And then notice this, And he exercised how much authority? All authority of the first beast. Now go back to the first beast. In verse 2, he was given authority, it says, in verse 2, from the dragon. It says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And that power became a persecuting power. And so here, in verse 12... The United States exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and causes or forces the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Everyone is going to be caused to go back and to worship Rome, who was wounded and will be healed. And and it has the same power that Rome once did to enforce it. So let me ask you, is Rome fully healed? Let me use my arm as an example. As I move my arm around like this, does my arm look healthy and in pretty good shape? Let's say I were to break my arm But then, as part of the physical therapy, I have to do certain motions of exercise, right? As I do those motions, what happens gradually over time? Yes, I get stronger and stronger. And then when I can do this, you say, he's healed. He can return to work, perhaps. I don't know. So I would say when Rome was healthy, it had power, throne, and great authority through the combination of church and state, and it became what kind of power? A persecuting power. But is Rome back at this state yet? Is it fully healed? No. Believe me, if it was, you would know about it. But the wound has started the healing process, but it's not fully healed. But there's a doctor in the process. The doctor is found here in Revelation 13, verse 11, that we just read about. You saw it. It was the second beast, none other than the United States of America. And the U.S. will play a key role in bringing everyone back to who? Rome. Back to the papacy. Now, you stop and think about that. That's a solemn thought as an American. 
Verse 12, again, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs and so that he even makes fire come down from heaven and on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. An image, a counterfeit, if you will. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and to cause as many as would not worship, there it is again, the image or the counterfeit of the beast to be killed, healed, fully restored. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Revelation 13, I propose to you, is the last act in the drama. Satan's going to impress people to take the mark of the beast. And Jesus believes in warnings. Can I hear an amen? amen? Take heed. When we get to the climax, there are serious consequences. God did not raise up this last day church to simply tell people God loves you. Now, don't get me wrong. God absolutely loves you. But he loves you enough to warn you. Fair enough? John 8, 32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Free from what? You keep reading down there a little further. It's to keep you clear and free from sin. So the truth sets people free. Sin holds you in bondage. And the mark of the beast is Satan's last effort to secure God's people forever and ever and ever in sin. We need the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In Revelation 13, God is desiring that we receive the truth. So when I think about where we are in prophecy, it's rather amazing to me. You want to know why? For starters, popes are supposed to stay in power how long? Until they die. But all of a sudden, Pope Ratzinger has health issues and steps down. So now we have Pope Francis, who is taking the world by storm. Have you noticed? Here he is here. People love this guy. In fact, one of the things they love about him is that he denies the Pope mobile. Pope Francis' faith is so strong that he will forego the bulletproof Mobile for his upcoming trip to Brazil. Shows a couple of things. One, that he is fearless of death, and also a powerful statement of humility. Right? Another thing that he does is he denies, um, well, he takes the bus. How about that? Since his election on March 13, 2013, the anniversary of which falls on Thursday, Francis is broken with many customs and a drive to bring more simplicity to the Vatican. Instead of taking that long, huge entourage, he just takes the bus. How would you like that if President Obama did that? Gets on the bus with you and just strikes up a conversation. He wants to ride with the common people. Here it is. Instead of this, uh, well, let me just read it. Francis, the first Jesuit to assume the papacy, has become widely known for his embrace of simplicity and humility since he became pope. He's entitled to this huge palatial place. Tons of room. And he says, I don't need that much room. Just give me a standard room. That'll be fine. And then he comes downstairs and he wants to pay for his room. You heard about this, right? And what do they tell him? Pope Francis, you don't need to pay for the room. You own the building. And he says, no, I want to be treated like everybody else. And so he pays for his room. 
You probably heard about this too. France's decision to celebrate the Mass with young offenders at the Casal del Marmo Center represents a break with tradition, but is in step with his record in embracing simplicity and humility. Over and over again in the media, this idea of simplicity, this idea of humility, this idea of taking the bus, of washing people's feet, of turning away the big palatial place that he could live in. And the world is being taken by storm. In fact, he did something. We practice communion in this church. When is the last time that you washed somebody's feet and then you kissed their feet? That's a big statement to make. And he did it over and over and over to these prisoners. And the world is being taken by storm. They are wondering after him. And what's the first thing that stood out to me? He's our first Jesuit pope. Look at these other slides here. World News, NBC News. Pope Francis is unique not just for being the first Latin American pope. He's also the first Jesuit pope, possibly signaling a renewed emphasis in traditional Catholic theology by the church. If NBC only read Great Controversy. We read this in Great Controversy. Throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. We want to crush out Protestantism. And so they raised up this order. All this time, the order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. To combat these forces, Jesuitism inspired its followers with a fanaticism that enabled them to endure like dangers and to oppose to the power of truth all the weapons of deception. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. They're kind of the secret service of the Catholic Church. Infiltrate all that you can, get as much power and authority as you can. When's the last time you counted how many Supreme Court justices are Catholic? They have the majority. And look at this vowed to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. We want to crush out Protestants using any means necessary and under this guise of poverty and humility. When appearing as members of their order, they wear a garb of sanctity, visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus who went about doing good. Do you think Ellen White knew what she was talking about? Does that describe our situation? I can't help but think of Amos 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. I mean, this isn't new. This idea, oh, we have a prophet. I don't don't understand. It just sounds weird. That's strange. No, it's not. If you read scripture, it's all the way through. Every time something major was impending, God sent his prophet to his people, to warn them of what was impending. When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? Noah, he was a prophet. When God was going to raise up a chosen people, Father Abraham, he was a prophet. When the Exodus came, who did God raise up? Moses, he was a prophet. When the monarchy came, Samuel, he was a prophet. When the exile came from that kingdom, there was a host of them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. All saying, behold the word of the Lord. It's not a new concept. When the Messiah came, who was the prophet? John the Baptist. 
When the gospel goes to the Gentiles, who did God raise up? Paul. He was a prophet. And so when the Messiah is coming the second time, does it not only make sense that he would raise up a prophet to take us through and navigate the channels of the dangers that are impending? Out of love for us. You want to talk about a God of love? My God loves me so much that he sent the prophet to warn me to tell me what to look for, that I may be aware. Woe to the Seventh-day Adventist that says, we don't want to listen to the prophet. Have you heard words like that in the Old Testament? Get rid of Ellen White. We don't want to hear from her. What always happens time and time and time again when God's people reject and refuse? And what people don't realize is when they get rid of her, they are actually proving her to be who she says she is. It's Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. That's Satan's plan. I mean, wouldn't it make sense if you were the devil and you had a whole book written with your whole war plan? What do you want to do? Burn the book. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to discredit Ellen White in every way possible. And there's even Seventh-day Adventists today, heaven forbid, that are buying into it. They're saying, we don't need it. We don't want to hear from her. She's out of date. The more I read Ellen White, the more I find every day that passes, she's more up to date. So when I think of where we are in Earth's history... I think of uh, this quote again, continuing on. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe, and wherever they went, there followed a revival of what? Popery. A revival of popery. Friends, have you noticed in this country and around the world a revival of popery? Time Magazine, maybe you saw this, named the Pope Person of the Year in 2013. That wasn't even a year ago. And everyone's wondering after him, talking about him, how great he is, because he is a people person. He interacts well with the people. I mean, look at this. Have we ever seen a Pope take a selfie to be posted online? And so he's connecting with the old, with the young, with everybody there, wondering after this man. Did you know in 2013 he was the most talked about on Facebook over anybody else just last year? And another study, Global Language Monitor, they survey all the things that people are writing about and putting up on the web and all this kind of stuff. The number one thing talked about online last year, this man. He's got the world's attention. So I imagine now that he has won the people's hearts, he can move into phase two of his plan. Come on, here's another shot here. You recognize this individual? Tony Palmer. In fact, that's going to be shown tonight. Is that right, Terry? That will send chills up and down your spine. This man, Bishop Tony Palmer, this past February, this year of February, and Pastor Ferguson's already mentioned this a few times, he is friends with another bigwig in evangelism, Kenneth Copeland, or in Protestantism. And so this guy, Tony Palmer, was invited to address this group of evangelical pastors and Pentecostal pastors, and he says, Luther's protest is over, is yours. And it reads this definition, and they signed this document back in 2000 that says that we believe in salvation by grace alone, not by works, so the protest is over, is yours. Now, wait a second. How many theses were there? Was it just one, Luther's one thesis that he nailed to the door? But he says the protest is over. And then he says the church, the Catholic church, no longer believes in salvation by works, I already said that. And the protest is over. 
This man, however, happens to also be very good friends with the Pope. In fact, he says, we were friends before, and I thought when he became Pope, we wouldn't be friends anymore, but he still continues to make quite a bit of time for me, and it's been such a blessing. And he goes on and on talking about it. And then he shows a video clip that supposedly he took off the cuff. Whether or not he did, I don't know. But he pulled out his iPhone, and he takes this clip of the Pope, supposedly, and he comes back to this conference, and the Pope is now addressing this specific crowd. How would you like it if I had a video of the Pope saying, Hello, Hendersonville, 7th Avenue Church. I have a message for you. Would that get your attention? And so he starts talking about unity and oneness and Jesus' final prayer is that we all become one. And Joseph's brothers, when they left and they came back, you know what Joseph's brothers did when they came and met Joseph back again? Bowed down to worship. So he says all these things in a very eloquent way and, and so on and asks everybody to return to the mother church. So then they kick it back to this guy and Kenneth Copeland, maybe you've seen him before, he's standing there near the podium now, and he says, come on up here, and he brings his little cell phone, he says, I want you to take a picture of this. This is after they go into this whole speaking in tongues, by the way, and they're feeling the spirit and all this thing that's going on, and he says, come up here, and he pulls out his phone, and he says, I want you to take this and give this back to the Pope. And he says, we hear your plea, and we accept. I mean, it's just incredible. And then he goes into this little party dance thing that he does, and he says, heaven is thrilled over this. He's just gloating. He said, when I started ministry 40-some years ago, this never would have happened, and it wouldn't have. Then in a later video posted on YouTube, you can find this too, he makes the statement and the call again for Protestants to return to the Mother Church. The protest is over. And he goes as far as to say, if you can read that tiny print up there, Tony Palmer and Pope Francis believe Protestants are spiritual racists. If you don't return, if you're dragging your feet, if you don't think we need to reunite with the Mother Church because the protest is over, then you are spiritual racists. You're a bigot. There's a book came out uh, February 2013, just over a year old. It's called Catholics Come Home. And you can find this little promotional video that talks about how this will give you seven simple steps in how to return to God and have a fulfilling life. And it's all promoted by uh, Coach Lou Holtz by Cardinal Timothy Dolan, by Rick Warren, by Touched by an Angel, Roma Downey. The whole world's getting on board, and they say, this is the book that we think is fantastic. Catholics come home. Here's another one. USA Today. Boehner invites Pope Francis to address Congress. And this is a formal and open invitation. Happened just in March 13 of this year. And if and when the Pope accepts, because it's an open invitation, it would be unprecedented. No pope or religious leader that serves as head of state has ever addressed Congress, it says there in fine print. This is according to the U.S. House Historian's Office. Are people wondering after this man? Here's another one. Just came out in June 8th of this month. You can't keep up. Joel Olstein, you recognize his face? He met with the pope. The headline here reads, Joel Olstein meets with Pope Francis at Vatican. He's made the church more, what's the word? Inclusive. And they're just jumping on one after the next, after the next. Does this guy have influence? Here's a picture of his church. Can you believe that? Sunday after Sunday, in fact, here's a New York Times article that says a church that packs them in 16,000 at a time. Interesting. So we are literally watching Revelation 13 unfold right before our eyes. So the United States is the doctor helping Rome heal. What did it say in verse 12? And he exercised the United States all authority of the first beast in his presence. And he causes or forces 
the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the United States exercises all the power of the first beast, power, throne, and great authority, and causes or forces them to worship the first beast, Rome. And if they don't receive the mark, eventually, death. This is an interesting slide that we use in our evangelism from the Catholic record. Sunday is our what? Mark. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. They're not shy about it. They're proud of it. In fact, all of you Protestants have been just under the mother church umbrella anyway with Sunday observance because there's no biblical authority for that. In fact, I have another quote, and I took it out for the sake of time, but it says, if you want to be a true Protestant, you need to become a Seventh-day Adventist because they worship on the biblical Sabbath because on Sunday there's no scriptural authority. Now, maybe you're a guest here today and your custom is to worship on Sunday, but please understand, in doing so, you're not following what the Bible teaches, but you're following Rome. But you, too, are invited to be a true Protestant, to believe in sola scriptura because there is no way you can study the Bible and end up worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. Well, maybe I did have it in here. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. Oh, now the rest of it's gone. Okay. Told you I'm an amateur at this PowerPoint, but it's not about me. Pope Francis has a few words in support of leisure. Look right here where the arrow is. Responding to the question, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure? Pope Francis replies, together with the culture of work, there must be a culture of leisure as gratification. To put it another way, people who work must take the time to relax, to be with their families, to enjoy themselves, read, listen to music, play a sport. But this is being destroyed in large part by the elimination of the Sabbath rest day. Agree, is he talking about the same Sabbath rest day? More and more people work on Sundays as a consequence of their competitiveness imposed by a consumer society. In such cases, he concludes, work ends up dehumanizing people. And so last October, about 250 bishops met in Rome for a conference on the movement called the New Evangelization, which focuses on reawakening faith in those already baptized. One of their conclusions was, even though there is a tension between the Christian Sunday and the secular Sunday, Sunday needs to be recovered. In keeping, they wrote, with John Paul's Deus Domini, which his whole paper, John Paul's whole paper, is that we need to return to Sunday. We need laws that prohibit, I mean, because let's stop and think about it. As long as you can work on Sunday and I can't, you have an advantage. So let's just even the playing field. That's a good way in, isn't it? We'll just even the playing field and none of us can work on Sunday. Everybody's shop will be closed. You can't buy a car. You can't buy groceries. We're just going to close it all down on Sunday and then we can have our leisure time. Union of church and state. And it starts seemingly innocent and it's always downhill from there. <clears throat> You may wonder, how is this all going to come into play? How is this union of church and state going to come together? I mean, this is free America. Let me propose to you a possibility. Gay marriage. I'm not saying this is it, but I'm saying it sure looks like a good possibility. This is Satan's mastermind plan because the question is, how can you combine religious convictions, and civil rights. Now, you may have noticed that the attempt was made by the devil to accomplish this means, I think, through abortion, but it never got quite the attention that gay marriage has gotten. I mean, the whole world is talking about it. It doesn't matter where you go. If you talk about Singapore, the issue is gay marriage. If you go to the Philippines, the issue is gay marriage. If you go to Africa, the issue is gay marriage. If you go to Germany, gay marriage. United States, gay marriage. It's everywhere. 
You can't get away from it. In fact, the season finale of this primetime TV show, Modern Family, which I do not recommend to anyone, the whole thing was a gay wedding. And they're still using this for publicity stunts. Even this week, they were in Salt Lake City, Utah. One of the actors was there, and they were promoting this whole thing about gay marriage. But you know what? I think the Bible even may refer to this. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 24, verse 37. Matthew chapter 24, we have all these signs of the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man, and the parable of the fig tree, and no one knows the day or the hour. And we find ourselves in Matthew 24, verse 37. But it says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 38, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Question. What will we see in the last days? Well, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Let me ask you, is Jesus against eating and drinking? How many of you will do that before the day's up? Is Jesus against marrying and giving in marriage? How many here are married? How many here are going to a wedding this this summer. So is Jesus condemning any of those things? No, he created food for us to eat. Our bodies require water and drink to stay alive. He instituted marriage. Marriage is holy. God is the author of it. So really, what's the issue? Turn with me to Genesis. We're going to look at what it says about Noah there in Genesis. Or at least the times of Noah, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, it says, The earth also was, what's the word? Corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Three times the word corrupt appears. It's not just that they're eating and drinking and marrying. No, I believe the case could be made that they are eating and drinking in a corrupt way. That they are marrying and giving in marriage in a corrupt way. Is that too far of a stretch? I mean, you look at Genesis 6, 5, just a few verses before. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, continu- only evil continually. Three superlatives. Every intent, only evil, continually. So it's not that they're eating and they're drinking and they're marrying, but they're doing it in a way that is corrupt. Friends, today marriage is being corrupted. And I don't dare try and illustrate this one. The Bible is so clear on this issue, but people are interpreting scripture in creative ways to get around it. You know what these fellows will say that are coming here that have used every argument under the sun for homosexual practice? They say, we don't need to be told it's wrong. We all know it's wrong. Isn't that interesting? The world will tell you, well, you can't change. Did you know it's another statistic that the world will never tell you? There are more former, you know what the word former means, right? There are more former homosexuals than there are homosexuals. God does not condemn what he does not give you grace to overcome. Sin is sin. And I'm not picking on the homosexual. We all have sin in our life, and we all need God's grace to overcome. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin in my life just as much as he hates the sin in anybody else's life. But we find people weaseling their ways around to change their idea of what they think the Bible really means. I think the Bible means exactly what it says. And so we have uh, here, timeline of Obama's evolving on the same-sex marriage. This is October 2004, before he's elected. What I believe is that marriage is between a man and a woman. What I believe in my faith, notice that, is that a man and a woman, when they get married, are performing something before who? God, and not, it's not simply the two persons who are meeting. That's what he said. 
Then times changed a little bit. He was elected. There was a little bit of pressure to be reelected. And his opinions are changing. I don't know if you can read that. It says, I have to tell you. This is in 2012, May 9, ABC News. I have to tell you that over the course of several years, I have talked to friends and family and neighbors. There's authority for you, right? I've talked to friends. I've talked to family. I've talked to neighbors. When I think about members of my own staff who are incredibly committed monogamous relationships, same-sex relationships, who are raising kids together, when I think about the soldiers or airmen or marines or sailors who are out there fighting on my behalf and yet feel constrained even now that don't ask, don't tell is gone because they are not able to commit themselves in a marriage at a certain point. I've just concluded, according to my friends and my family and my neighbors and myself, I've just concluded that for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think the same-sex couple should be able to get married. There's no talk of his faith. There's no talk of God's word. And people in our church are using the same argument. Seventh-day Adventist, little documentary, it's all about emotionally drawing you in. Now again, does God love all those people? Absolutely he does. He died for them. He loves them as much as he loves you and I. But can we then condone their lifestyle? So, he's not going to be around forever. Some people think that Hillary Clinton will come in right behind him. I don't know. 44% of Americans think that. We'll see what happens. But we know where she stands. She's for it. She's been for it. Here's the Pope. I don't know how long he'll be around. He's on a plane. He said he'd never give a private interview. What's he doing here? Giving a private interview. Maybe not private, but a, a, a public interview anyway. If someone is gay who searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? If they're a nice person, who am I to judge? And he just basically leaves it there. Pretty clever, if you ask me. He's not going to put his neck out there. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's popular for gays to come out these days. It didn't used to be. It used to be filled with all kinds of shame, but now the world praises them when they come out. Have you noticed that? We admire your courage. We're so proud of you for what you've done. You're an inspiration to us. They applaud you. When it was unpopular to be gay... Do you know what they wanted? They wanted their rights to be respected, and they just wanted to be part of society. Those two things. Rights respected and just let us be part of society. Now that the tables have turned and they've become, it's become popular to be gay, if a Christian dares to say, we believe this is a sinful practice, what happens to them in the media? They're persecuted. Persecuted. Immediately taken off the air, immediately this, immediately that. They're slammed like they're bigots. Fire them, get rid of them. I get too worked up and I lose where I am. I know we need to be done. I'm sorry. If you need to go, I won't be offended. CNN, February 26, 2014. That wasn't very long ago. Arizona government, Governor Jan Brewer vetoes controversial anti-gay bill. She vetoed a bill on Wednesday that would have allowed businesses that asserted their religious beliefs the right to deny service to gay and lesbian customers. Vetoed the bill. Well, my religious beliefs and convictions doesn't matter does not matter. And so here you have the prime example. Baker forced to make gay wedding cakes undergo sensitivity training after losing lawsuit. Can you make... So he comes to this, this bakery, he says, I would like a cake, but instead of a man and a woman on the top, I want a man and a man on top. Can you do that? And he says no. And he loses. So now our rights are being taken away. 
I was reading something the other day. I'm not sure how much longer I'll be able to refuse the same similar request for marriage and not also be persecuted for that. A family-owned bakery has been ordered to make wedding cakes for gay couples and guarantee that, if it, that its staff be given comprehensive training on Colorado's anti-discrimination laws after the state's Civil Rights Commission determined the Christian baker violated the law by refusing to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado, was directed to change his store policies immediately and force his staff to attend the training sessions. For the next two years, Philip will also be required to submit quarterly reports to the commission to confirm that he has not turned away customers based on their, sexually or their sexual orientation. Free America! Great controversy. Political corruption is destroying love for, of justice and regard for truth, and even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor. Wasn't that what Obama was talking about? We find that in Revelation, by the way. It's a cry from the people. It's from the bottom up, not from the top down, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, where in order to secure public favor will yield to the popular demand for a law-enforcing Sunday observance. 592, great controversy. What do we read in 1 Chronicles 12, 32? To be the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what to do. In a time where we, and I'm talking literally now, we as a Seventh-day Adventist church are the only growing Protestant denomination. Everybody else is losing footing. Maybe that's why they're getting desperate. I don't know. But in a time where we are the only Protestant organization that is growing, as God's remnant church, we should have an understanding of the times. We should be proclaiming the three angels' message of Revelation 14. Fear God and worship Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. We have exactly and precisely what the world needs for this time. We have truth for this hour. But in light of that fact, that we are the only Protestant faith growing, we are embarrassed of our message. We are embarrassed of Ellen White, and we are ignorant about what she has to say. We just don't read her. We're embarrassed about the Sabbath. We try to marginalize everything that makes us unique, and we want something new and fresh. You know what I came across? In fact, I presented this to my youth a few weeks ago. I saw this in the doctor's office. Blew me away. Finding God in the dark. And I said, what? I mean, this just smacked of spiritual formation. So I picked it up. And I read it. Then I found out a few weeks later that one of our Adventist pastors, the leader of the One Project at one of our university churches, touted this individual, Barbara Brown Taylor. And here's her picture. And here's what she says. Darkness is often treated, this is what it says in the article, as evil, a vast unknown, and the ultimate spiritual enemy. But as one of America's leading theologians believes, it may save us all. It only gets creepier after that. She's got a moon garden, and she goes out on these moonlit walks, and on and on and on. I mean, it's just it's spiritual formation. There's no other way to say it. And yet, one of our pastors at one of our universities preached and talked all about darkness and how we find darkness all throughout the Bible. Well, let me, I got news for you. Half of the Bible, or half of the time we have, is in darkness, right? But we, ha we found as, as a youth group in probably 30 minutes, I don't know, 50, 60 texts, let me share something with you. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You don't find God in darkness. John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. John 3, 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were 
evil. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Since then, I just constantly keep running into these quotations about darkness. Yet this preacher talked all about and mentioned her by name, read her books, how she's just such a wonderful author, and he was so blessed by her. And probably about five minutes into the sermon, you can watch it online, all the windows in the church were covered and taped, and they dimmed the lights on purpose, and he preached three-fourths of the sermon in the dark. Is that a little bit weird? And then for two minutes at the very end, he stopped talking, and there was complete silence in the sanctuary for two minutes. If I stopped talking for 10 seconds, y'all would be weirded out. In light of our times, I could talk to you about Adventist pastors doing flash mob evangelism. You know what a flash mob is? They go to some city center and they start pumping some loud music or maybe they start, you know, generating the music sometimes, but they start pumping this music in a downtown square and all these avenues start coming out and they start doing all these dance moves and they start singing this song and the point is, today is the day to make a change. That's as deep as the song goes and they're just all over the place. And the pastor's interviewed, and he says, we just think there's a great creative way to get out in the community, to have good, you know, relations with them, and to share our message. What message? Today's the day for change? The devil can use the same message. In light of our times, I could show you Avenus hospitals that do the same thing, flash mob. Avenus colleges that do the same thing. Avenus academies doing the same thing. In fact, I came across one where the staff is the one doing the flash mob to a worldly song that's all about sex and drugs and alcohol and partying. And in the middle of that, there's some extremely inappropriate behavior that one of the dance moves of one of these faculty members does that would get any of our kids expelled out of school. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that we have good people in our universities and in our schools and in our hospitals But I have to tell you, I'm severely disappointed more and more these days at how the bar is being lowered. Our identity as a people is being lost. And this idea of nominal Adventism, nominal meaning in name, is an epidemic. We have too many people, we don't know who we are. And in light of prophecy being fulfilled, We're in the dark, yet we think it's new light. I don't like to put down the bride of Christ. That's not my intention at all. It's this precious church for whom Jesus died. And I love this church. But rather my plea is that we wake up from our slumber. That we start being like the sons of Issachar who started seeing clearly the times in which they lived. It can no longer be business as usual. Jesus is coming soon, friends. Prophecy is being fulfilled, and all the while, we're asleep. I can't help but think of the the story of the ten virgins and the parable of the ten virgins. We know Jesus is addressing the church, our church, because it's undefiled by false doctrine. They're pure. They're virgins. But I hate to tell you, but all ten were found sleeping. All ten. But out of those ten, five were foolish and five were wise. What made the foolish foolish and what made the wise wise? It was the oil, the Holy Spirit in their lives. The bridegroom tarried and they thought that their former experience was enough. But we see people that are denying their former experience. The bridegroom's tarried too long and they're running out of oil, running out of steam. And they just want to be like everybody else. Christ Object Lessons 411 says, the class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. Did you catch that? These are the foolish virgins. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. This is not some radical offshoot. They have been involved in witnessing. Thirdly, they are attracted to those who believe in the truth. And here's the stark reality of the parable. But they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. The old nature within their hearts is still dominant. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old natures to be broken. The Spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent, and planting in him a new nature. 
But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They don't know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. This service to God generates into a form. How sad. Outwardly, we can have it all together. But inwardly, we can be empty. It can just be a form, a casing. Be dry. They were instructed by the word, but not changed through the word. Convicted of the truth, but not changed by the truth. And here's the essential question. Has the truth that you believe in so radically transformed your life that you're a different man or a different woman? Has the truth so radically reordered your life that you no longer are consumed with the cares of this world? Is your faith growing in the Lord? Are you growing in Christ? Or are you just maintaining, treading water? Has your spiritual life degenerated into form? If so, there's good news. There is an abundant supply of heaven's oil. There is no shortage of oil. But nobody else's prayers are a substitute for yours. Nobody else can have an intimate relationship with God but you. And in the bridegroom's absence, there's that tendency to slumber. The greatest danger that the foolish virgins face is that we face is putting off a decision to let God deal with our hearts the way he wants to, which is of enormous consequence. God is calling you and me to something deeper than we could ever imagine. Have you been putting off a deeper experience with God in your own life? Even now, do you sense the Spirit moving in your own heart? to a deeper Bible study life, a deeper prayer life. Because the only way to get ready for the coming of Christ is to get ready today and to stay ready. Is there anything lurking in the shadows of your heart this morning? And are you willing to say, Lord, I want to surrender any habit, any attitude that's a barrier between me and anybody else? I want to surrender any habit in my life that's not in harmony with your will. Lord, I want you to do a work in me so that I can hold the torch of truth high. Lord, I long for the oil of your grace to flow into my heart and my life. So I want to challenge you. If your relationship isn't where it ought to be, Maybe the Holy Spirit is pleading with your heart to say, return to me in a new way, a new commitment. It says, I want to honor you. I want to follow you. I want to be like the sons of Issachar who recognize the times in which we live and know what to do, and that's to cling to you, to take off my grip on this world and to cling to you. Dearest Heavenly Father, Lord, we have come forward because we long to let the world go and to cling to you. This is no time for business as usual. It's no time to just take a casual approach. And so we have come forward because we long to be in deep communion with you each and every day, to pray for ourselves, to study for ourselves, to follow to some degree these events for ourselves, but more than anything else, to make sure we are right with you, that there's nothing between our soul and our Savior. Lord, in these times of peer pressure that we face, help us to be committed to you, Help us to stand for truth in a loving, Christ-like way. But help us to stand on Christ, the solid rock. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.